What do Nelson Mandela and Osama bin Laden have in common? They likely shared an Enneagram type, Enneagram type 1. But what accounts for the differences we see in how they showed up in the world? It's probably not because of their instincts or tri-type. It's probably to do with what Don Rizzo called their level of psychological balance, also called levels of development or levels of consciousness. These levels, discovered by Rizzo in the 70s and refined later by his thinking and writing partner, Russ Hudson, are really important to any study of the Enneagram because without them, we're liable to using the Enneagram to stay identified rather than to grow. The nine levels for each type are described in detail in Rizzo's book, Personality Types. And at the back of that book, you'll find a list of the nine fears propelling the nine self-images at each level. This basically offers a blueprint for waking from the trance of personality. Locate your level, feel the fear named for that level and notice it driving a specific self-image. For Riso Hudson graduates, Harry Prasada Das and Razanath Das, the levels are front and centre to the way they guide people using the Enneagram. They're using the vehicle of the Enneagram to deliver on a specific mission, helping people to disidentify with the ego and access the real self. You'll hear how they founded their organisation Upbuild in a Monastery and now, along with Michael Sloyer and Vipan Goyle, offer individual and executive coaching, workshops, Enneagram deep dives and courses on spirituality. You can find them at upbuild.com. Many good things were said during this interview. I loved what Harry Prasada named about the Enneagram only taking us to a a threshold, delivering us to the true comprehension of our helplessness against our automations. This is a truth that had gone undefined in my experience until now. I'm not sure I would have ever found the incentive to invest my time and other resources in a spiritual practice without the ability to see my suffering so clearly, which the Enneagram has given me. Razanath's utterings on the kinds of responsibility and the paradox inherent in the endeavour to ascend the levels of consciousness found them very profound. They have a podcast, which is how I found them actually, through a really interesting framing around introversion and the Enneagram, and also many events. Links in the episode notes. around 14 years ago pursuing the monastic life in New York correct that's exactly right and then you brought in Vipan and Michael later now I know after reading your bios that the introduction to the Enneagram came via one of you two or both of you two at the same time I would love to hear how it came your way please and and then what that was like the early encounters with the Enneagram I think we could both share something on that Rasanath you want to begin thank you So my first uh, meeting with the Enneagram came from one of my mentors. Then I was still not a monk, but I was very closely associated with this monastery in New York and the Lower East Side. And uh, my spiritual journey, I would say, started when I was very young. 
experiencing the existential angst of death and dying when I was a seventh grader, combined with uh, watching Wall Street as an eighth grader and feeling the ambition and success. And so I was a very torn, on one side, there was this spiritual aspiration. And on the other side, there was this huge material aspiration of being very successful. And that I continued on that journey, not knowing, not having the vocabulary to integrate those two things and not knowing how to, how to bring those two things together. Uh, and so for a long time, that was what the journey was until I graduated from school and had my first job um, in consulting and got an experience of what corporate America is like uh, from you know very close quarters. And in association with this uh, monastery, I really began to understand that work, the work of the ego is a very, very big part of the spiritual journey. And even when you're on a spiritual path, uh, the ego always seems to <laughs> show up <laughs> in your relationships, even in your own spiritual practice, where now your spiritual practice can be, become a prop for the ego to show how great it is. And so I, I, in in having those kinds of conversations, one of my mentor, one of my mentors recommended that I look into the Enneagram. And this was still very early days. I think Personality Types was the first book that I that mm. I came across, and I was very drawn to drawn to it. And I fell into the same bucket of making sure that I could have a very informed conversation about the Enneagram with other people and type them. Uh, so I I clearly fell into that trap. I typed myself incorrectly. Oh <laughs> really? Tell round. me, tell me more. Yeah, yeah. So so you're a three. I that's correct, isn't it? Yes, yes. I am a type three uh, on the Enneagram. But for the first, my first run around it was I typed myself as a as a as a two. Mm, okay. Um, and I have a two wing. Mm. Uh, but uh, I typed myself as a two. And the person that I had a lot of difficulty with, I typed that person as a three. Mm-hmm. Although, although that person wasn't a type three uh, as well. And I started typing other people. And <laughs> until I came across a second journey into the Enneagram, which was four years later. This was in 2003, my first encounter with the Enneagram. The second time when I was in business school, I picked up uh, the wisdom of the Enneagram. And uh, that was very confronting. I think I had gotten to become more aware of myself a little more by that time. The I would say the the shadow parts of the three were so extremely visible. And when I first came across the possibility that I might be a type three, I actually closed the book and put it away. Mm, yeah. Um, and But then, you know how when something is revealed so strongly, the, the truth speaks so loud to you that you have to go back and, and reread it again because mm-hmm. you can't shut it out. Um, so I picked up the book again. And yes, that was the time when I really felt like, wow, this is, this is so true. And has been mm-hmm. so true my entire life, and I have just uh, run away from so much, so many things that I have to look at. And that's when we became, uh, I became more serious about the the study of the Enneagram. And then in 2010, which was another landmark in our Enneagram journey, uh, when I was a monk, and Hari was monk too, we embarked mm-hmm. on uh, a systematic study of the Enneagram, uh, and we got 
personally trained by Don Riso and Russ Hudson. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I first encountered the Enneagram in 2007. I was living in the monastery, but I was not yet a monk. So I had come from the film world. I was uh, at NYU Film and uh, was making movies, trying to pave my way to Hollywood. Uh, very similar feel to what Rasana described, that there was a, an incredible ambition to make something of myself, to matter, to impact the world, and also to see my name in lights. That's really mm -hmm. what I, I had in mind um, as a big part of that, which I'm embarrassed about. And at the same time, I wanted to have a message for people that I would impact people with. And so I was checking out different philosophies and I was particularly transformed, I must say, by the philosophy of Soren Kierkegaard, which is what opened up my spiritual path. Danish founding father of existentialism, incredible person. And when I I met some monks at my school at a vegetarian cooking club, I started connecting the two things over time, Kierkegaard's philosophy and what they stood for. And I saw there was not only overlap, but they were driving towards the same thing. So I found myself becoming more and more engaged with wanting to live a philosophically responsible life, an intellectually responsible life, and one that would get me in touch with who I really am rather than just kind of moving through the currents of life and swaying according to the company that I would keep. And this monastery was, uh, it felt like the center of the universe to me in New York City. It was something that was so attractive. It had such a, an energy about it that I felt like I needed to be there. And so I was intent on getting monastic training so that I could then go outside and make meaningful spiritual films uh, that would be relevant to the general public, even those who are not spiritual, especially those who are not spiritual. But I ended up falling in to that vortex of energy um, that made me not want to leave. And the Enneagram was uh, a fixture in that time. Uh, so again, I was getting monastic training. I was working outside and as a freelance writer, still working on writing creative projects and things. But I saw that Rasnat mentioned the shadow sides of, of his type, the three. You know, in the past, I thought I was so good and I've got everything together. I mean, I had insecurities, plenty of them. I had ups and downs, plenty of them. But I thought like, I'm just so good that... Like, who cares? <laughs> I'm a good person and I'm good at life. And, um, and then as I was really getting more introspective, I mean, I was already introspective, but with a spiritual and philosophical lens, I was seeing so many things that I had no access to, that I was blind to. And then I realized, my God, I'm not so good. I'm not so good. I'm not, I'm not even that good of a person. What to speak of that good at life? I realize I have so many bad qualities. I'm so selfish and I'm so egocentric and fixated on my own world. 
And even when I serve other people, there's always something, you know, subtly in it for me. And I became disgusted. Not that I hated myself. I, I had, I still had some self-esteem and some appreciation for the good qualities that I, I've been given. But I, I became disgusted with the coverings to my real self. The Enneagram became instrumental in my seeing why those coverings are there, how many there are, and what to do about it. Mm. My first contact with the Enneagram was Richard Rohr's mm. uh, discovering the Enneagram. And Richard Rohr has this spiritual bent uh, as a Franciscan friar, uh, amazing person. And I remember the vividness of his description of my type. So I encountered the book and I encountered the Enneagram through a mentor in the monastery. And he told me, I think you might want to read this. He had typed me and he had typed me correctly. Mm -hmm. So he said, I think you might want to read this. He said, I think, I think you and I might be the same type. So I was intrigued. I didn't even know what types were or anything, mm -hmm. but I was, I was into learning more. And I just read this one chapter from Discovering the Enneagram, and I broke down in tears. Mm -hmm. And I thought, this is the freakiest experience. Mm -hmm. A total stranger has just gotten into my insides and described them better than I could have done if I had lived my entire life the way that I was going. <laughs> and it was so embarrassing. I mean, talk about em embarrassed to see my name in lights. That was not even the half of it. It was all of these little things that painted such a picture of my motivations and insecurities and just everything, my, like my internal dialogue in, in a very succinct way that mm -hmm. I was floored. And uh, unlike Rasanath, I, I felt like I need more immediately because if somebody knows all of this junk about me, then they must know how I can get rid of the junk. <laughs> <laughs> so I went for it. Um. When you discover your type, though all nine types are equal, you will think mine is the worst. <laughs> um, and so upbuild began in 2008 when I became a full-time monk and Rasanath was working and on his way to becoming a full-time monk. Um, and the, the premise is that if we want to be our best selves, we have to see what's getting in the way. I've been talking about seeing the coverings and seeing how do we remove those blocks. So if we want to be our best we have to see what's getting in the way. And what's getting in the way is the ego, that identity of who we think we should be rather than who we are, who mm -hmm. we think we should be rather than who we are. We're constantly trying to project things. I want to see myself a certain way. I want to prove that to myself. And usually that's leaking out onto other people, that proving energy, defending energy. I'm defending my identity and trying to prove it to myself. And I want to be like this. I want to be like this. I want to be like this. Wouldn't it be amazing if people saw me in this light? What if I could see myself in that light? All mental concoctions coming from the ego. The ego is machine that nonstop 24 seven, even when we dream is generating these conceptions about ourselves that have nothing to do with reality. 
And so upbuild is about getting to the heart of who we are by removing those layers of ego and investing in the real self. And um, it's not just us image types that are doing the, these contortions with the ego. It's all the types, right? It's uh, it's all the types. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the when we understand the Enneagram deeply, you see the formation of the types. While every type, I would say, has pure characteristics of what the true self has, the formation of the types begins in the process of manufacturing those qualities. And each type gets attached to one specific quality of the true self mm -hmm. and begins the process of manufacturing that. And the manufacturing process is where the ego really steps in and says, okay, I'm going to make this happen. So the ego is essentially a proxy for the real self. And by, by definition, a proxy can never really give us the experience of the real self. And this is where, uh, on a very existential level, we experience a conflict. We want the things that the real self can experience through the proxy self. The Enneagram for, for us has been very powerful because it does two things. It actually shows, it points to the characteristics of the real self mm. through the energy of the types, which can never be, and this, this uh, sometimes is not necessarily understood. The gifts of every type is actually coming from the true self and mm. it points to the characteristics of the true self. Mm. And then the second part of it is what happens when we start manufacturing the characteristics of the true self. Right? This is what gives rise to the fixation of the types and, and the types getting entrenched in their own specific patterns, which when we begin to recognize and understand, one, recognize how deep these patterns run. And number two, hopefully in that process, experience their desire to be free from them is how we then start to move forward and, and release ourselves from the hold of the ego. So type is another word for the ego, right? They're sort of interchangeable. So a type is an ego, would you say or not? Yes and no. Mm. It's, it's, it's a little more complex. Mm. Um, Generally, what we see of the types is basically just egos, because mm -hmm. by default, that's what runs us. And so we talk about different ego types. However, that is not the full picture. There is genuine qualities of our personality that distinguish ourselves from each other. So we're not trying to do away with our personality type. We're not trying to do away with our nature. Our nature is something which we have to embrace. I've heard from a, a dear mentor, a very succinct coining that you don't become self-realized or you know, completely identified with the true self and leaving the ego behind. You don't become self-realized outside of your nature. You become self-realized within your nature. And it's not that your nature changes when you become self-realized. Your nature becomes pure. You mm -hmm. see the essence. And so a lot of our work centers around understanding the essence qualities of each of the types and then seeing how that gets distorted by the ego. So what we hear about as types um, mostly is the distortions. But those distortions are essentially also pointing to the pure self mm. and the characteristics of the pure self. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the things that our teachers, Don and Russ, would always bring 
each type presentation to was a, a point of helplessness. So when they were presenting the nine types, and we used to do this uh, in all of our uh, major workshops, we, we don't as much anymore because we see people need to be ready for this. But this is always in our hearts and always something that we love the opportunity to share. That when you really get to a certain point of seriousness, of seeing what is happening, you feel helpless. And then you, you cry out. You, you feel, I need to pray. I need, I need help because if it's up to me, there's no hope. They will say that the Enneagram can take you so far. And it's very, very, very powerful to take you to that point. Uh, that already requires so much. I mean, hardly anybody using the Enneagram is, is so serious about it. Uh, but then at that point, it's not that the Enneagram loses its meaning or its purpose or that we stop using it, but it's just that it cannot take you over that threshold. Then you need spiritual practice. And they're very explicit and very clear about that, that the Enneagram can take you to that precipice where you understand the necessity of spiritual practice. Um, let us move to the levels because this is very core to your teaching on the Enneagram. So what are what are these levels, firstly? The levels of consciousness, I believe you, you call them that, right? And what are they tracking? The levels of consciousness very simply are the degree to which we are identified with our ego versus ourself. Mm. It's a spectrum. And on the one end of the spectrum, there's the ego. On the other end of the spectrum, there's the self. And we are identifying and fluctuating with our identifications somewhere along that spectrum. The levels of consciousness help us to measure where we're at. And the purpose is what gives purpose to the Enneagram itself. It's to grow, it's to climb up those levels so that we can get closer and closer to the self and eventually liberated completely from the ego, leaving it behind altogether. So that's a possibility, a real possibility to leave the ego behind. Because to me, it is, yeah. It's a great question. Yeah, yeah, I think question. many people have that question. Mm. <laughs> I think many people also think that it's not possible. Mm. Yeah, Rasanath, you were going to say. And I also think that many people think uh, that it um, it's not necessary. The ego mm. is a right. part of the self. Yeah. That's also yeah. Yeah. Um, that's right. also a, a very prominent uh, uh, thought process, mm. even in the Enneagram world. And based on our experience what we have come to see and experience is that it's possible and it takes for us to experience people who are actually that's the only that's the only true test of uh the theory that it is possible to live uh completely free from the ego then you come mm -hmm. face to face with individuals who no, don't necessarily claim that as soon as you may be claiming well i'm free from the ego most likely that's probably not it's happened not, yeah. right but but it's like the example that I give uh, usually is that uh, you can have a lot of fake diamonds that look like a real diamond. But when we have only come across fake diamonds, sometimes we lose faith that a real diamond can exist. <laughs> but it takes for us to experience a real diamond to know what a fake diamond looks like. And it's a very similar thing. When you've come across individuals who are 
completely free from the ego. They are still people of this world, but that the identity of this world is not really driving them. It's almost like, a, well, I have an identity in this world and that's transactional, but that's not the real me. And they move around the world uh, with that sense. Um, and when you come in touch with them, and both for Hari Prasad and I, our, 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 our spiritual journey was, I would say, uh, really transformed when we had that kind of an intervention, when we came across individuals who defied our experience. And um, then we had to study them <laughs> and, and uh, try to figure out, well, how does, how does this work really? And then what you do see is uh, that freedom from the ego is characterized by one quality, one very specific quality that's spoken about a lot, but not really spoken about fully. And that quality is humility. Humility is a very paradoxical quality. Mm. And the reason why I call it paradoxical or self-protecting quality, when you deeply possess humility, you can't have the joy of having it. And as soon as I think I'm a very humble person, it's gone. The best way I can describe it is other people experience your humility. And what, what you experience when you have humility is a desire to love and serve without an entitlement for anything. Mm -hmm. And that quality is so rare that when you see that, and you see that consistently in someone, that's when you recognize that they're free from the ego. Mm. So it is possible. <laughs> we, call them, it's possible. we call them self-realized souls. Mm. And, uh, and, and that is what jump-started my own spiritual journey in the biggest way. I was getting interested as I was sharing with you, but the, the pivotal moments, the biggest turning points were... Soren Kierkegaard, who I would put up there as a self-realized soul, especially if you study how he left the world, telltale signs of somebody who was self-realized, somebody who was not afraid to die, somebody who understood what the self is and was identified with it, had his struggles up till the end, but his sincerity won over. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, um, meeting our gurus, I mean, it, it defied all possibilities that we had conceived of. I, I used to say um, that the saints are all in the tombs. I, I, somebody told me there's this Spanish expression. I've yet to find it, but the saints are all in the tombs. You know, if they even existed, if, you know, there was probably something about them that wasn't so saintly, but if they did, they're obsolete. Like there's no, there's no saints in modern times. It's just not, it's not possible. But when you see, and it's also not attractive to the ego <laughs> at all. It's like, who would want to do that? Self-abnegation, all that stuff. Oof, not for me. That's for the birds. But when you meet somebody who's truly saintly, who's truly a saint, self-realized soul, that there is such a joy, such a freedom, and such a provocation and a fullness to them that if there's any receptivity. And for most of us, the ego blocks us so much. I experienced that myself as well. But any window of receptivity, is, you get a taste and it's like, aha, I want that. Mm -hmm. And you develop more conviction that this is possible, that I'm also meant for this, not for the acclaim that comes with being a self-realized soul, 
but for the journey to true freedom and mm -hmm. fullness of experience that I meant for. And Rasanath had mentioned that, you know, they, they have transactional identities within this world. It's really uh, a sense of service using my identity in this world. I'm not attached to this identity. So that in that sense, I'm just transacting with the world. But the, the amount of love and the amount of inspiration and enthusiasm that these persons have, it's contagious. And so they use their place in this world to serve like anything and inspire other people on that journey to who we really are. Mm -hmm. And that's the purpose of Upbuild. That's what we're here to try to share with others. Mm -hmm. Um, is it worth studying how type manifests at each level? Is that a worthwhile endeavor to someone looking to develop? Absolutely. <laughs> also, also um, uh, the reason why the levels of consciousness was so revolutionary mm. and still continues to be so revolutionary is because it talks about every level, just like you would play a video game and you unlock a door, yeah. right? Um, the levels of consciousness are really talking about the, the, the a specific fear. Um, so every type has what you call their basic fear. And that basic fear has layers on top of it that manifest in very specific ways um, for that type. Now, what happened is what happens when you look at the levels of consciousness is at a particular level, a specific manifestation of the basic fear is what is playing out in our life. We become very mm -hmm. acutely aware of that specific form of our basic fear and learn to take responsibility. A door unlocks to the next level of consciousness. That is how the development takes place. Now, as you rise up the levels of consciousness, just like you would in a video game, the challenges become harder. Uh, you start going closer to the basic fear. Uh, which also means that now the fears are much more deep-rooted. And the experience of what Hari Prasad said, uh, which is feeling like I'm in a prison, when will I actually become unstuck from this specific level? You really start to experience that more, more viscerally. So uh, in that sense of the term, the levels of consciousness to me are, is the ladder, is the way up, and uh, also brings the specificity around what level are we are at and what is the, is the doorway to the next level when we understand the fear associated with each of these levels of consciousness. Yeah. We would go so far as to say that the levels of consciousness are really what make the Enneagram. So Don Riso and Russ Hudson's contribution there, it's, it's immeasurable mm -hmm. from an Enneagram standpoint. And, um, and it's so aligned with the spiritual understanding of wisdom traditions that we have to climb up these levels of consciousness by seeing what are the things that are preventing us by really studying and knowing you know the expression know thy me right you how can you get beyond something if you can't even see it and and each level of consciousness gives you such a glimpse into what's going on inside for each of the types. Without it, the types are very two-dimensional. It's mm -hmm. kind of flat. When you see the vertical dimension of the Enneagram, 
going from the basement of what we call the destructive consciousness Mm -hmm. to the ceiling, which is even beyond the creative consciousness, that that's what we call the highest level where we still have an ego. Uh, And then all the way to liberation where there's no more ego. It makes everything full and you can see the type in a new way and you can explain behaviors that you couldn't otherwise. I mean, all kinds of mistyping happens when you don't understand the levels of consciousness because, well, if Osama bin Laden is this type, then Nelson Mandela definitely can't be this type. Mm -hmm. If Saddam Hussein is this type, then, you know, Martin Luther King definitely couldn't be this type. Yeah. But actually, they're the same type. Mm, Yeah, which is crazy, actually, when you say it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about that, those categories you were just talking about a bit more. So, and you have your own names for these, I believe. Yes, that's right. Yeah, creative, controlling, and destructive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But why have you labeled them? The Why have you decided to call these stages these names? So... Don Riso and Russ Hudson have um, talked about the healthy, the average, and the unhealthy states. And they've also used um, different terms. The destructive state, um, there's a lot of overlap in how we speak about it in, in the coining. When it comes to creative, the inspiration there, the clarity that came to us as we were developing this in 2012 is that there's a landscape of possibilities that you just are shut out to at lower levels. Mm -hmm. At the creative, you can perceive that landscape of possibilities and you can actually choose. You have the freedom to choose which one will best serve your real self and other people's real selves. So there's a creativity, a freedom Uh, and inspiration that drives one. Now, that's not to say that it is easy. It is not. I mean, as any creative person will tell you, it's agonizing, the creative Mm -hmm. process, right? (laughs) I was sharing that with you before we began about the process of writing this book. It's not a happy-go-lucky place, but it's the most rewarding. And, And any, again, any creative person will tell you there's such a sense of purpose and, um, and, uh, a fulfillment that comes. So the creative consciousness is about seeing the possibilities and being so resourceful and free. The controlling consciousness is characterized by what we talked about, the ego doing its thing. You know, the the average state that we all find ourselves in, 99.9% of us, unless we've done extraordinary, dedicated, rigorous self-work for so many years and, you know, we don't have much ego left in us, um, we are in the controlling consciousness where we're being controlled by the ego and controlling other people and circumstances to get things our way and Mm -hmm. chiefly to get validation to get validation that I am who I think I should be. I am my ego identity. So I'm trying to control everything to get that. And there are infinite ways that we control. And all the types have very different ways of control, including very subtle ways that we are not aware of that we're doing. Um, even the, the persons who are more overtly controlling in the eyes of other people often don't know that that's what they're doing. 
But then you'll find types like, for example, the nine, we call the nine, the peace seeker, Mm -hmm. who are very introverted and very gentle and shy. They control just as much as the eight challenger who's like full on, I want control. (laughs) It's just that their methodology is so different Mm -hmm. and it's so under the covers, you know, it's Mm -hmm. like beneath the surface that the nine will angle to just make sure that you work out your own problems. Like, don't bring your problems to me. I'm a peaceful person and that's not a big deal. What, whatever you're going through, it's not a big deal. It's all right. You're better than that, but it's completely invalidating somebody else. And it's not dealing with an issue that can grow into something that becomes an emergency. And I'm pretending that it's because it's not a problem and you're so good and I'm so good and peaceful and uh, everything just rolls off me. Everything is great, but actually I'm terrified and I'm not admitting it to myself what to speak of being straightforward to the other person. So just an example, all the types are controlling and the the destructive, as we said, pretty much speaks for itself and overlaps Mm -hmm. with how Don and Russ talk about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to pinpoint what is the most evocative and true way of helping people see their level of consciousness. And do, and do you think that's a possibility? Do you think it's possible that we can actually pitch ourselves correctly on those levels? It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And yeah. uh, uh, when you're too confident, yes, I am, I am healthy. <laughs> More likely, your ego is actually showing up in some way. So someone who's actually trying to climb up the levels of consciousness um, always as a doubt, am I seeing myself accurately? Am I mm. seeing myself in the in the right place? And then what you will also see, and this is um, this is so important to understand, there is a place of quiet confidence that you arrive at, where you see that you can trust your own knowing where you are. There is clarity, and and then and then if you're seeking guidance from people who are also coming from a, a certain higher level of consciousness, that mirroring function is so important at any stage of life that we, ha- we are surrounded by people who can see us for our true selves and where we are on that journey. And when we receive their guidance and also receive like their, their, opinion, their suggestions and their validation, we, were, we are able to triangulate and, and rest in confidence that, you know what? I I I I think I can see myself a little more clearly in the spectrum. Mm-hmm. I see where I am where where I am at. And that is a, what I call the 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 quiet confidence. It's not for projection, it's not for mm-hmm. declaration outside. It's just for me to know in my own spiritual journey where I'm at. And that clarity only helps me take the next step with a greater degree of confidence. There's also another paradox here that goes right along with what Russ and I talked about with humility. Those who are at the creative consciousness generally don't think that they're at the creative consciousness. Hmm. And the reason is because they see all of their controlling tendencies. So you're seeing everything happening inside and it's humiliating Hmm. and it creates genuine humility. So people who are at the creative consciousness, their humility is rock solid because I really get it. Oh my God, I'm not all that. 
I'm not, I am not my projections. I'm not my hopes and dreams of what kind of a personality I could be. I am on my way to getting clean from the ego. I am on my way to arriving at the core of me, who I really am, which has nothing to do with this world and has nothing to do with impressing anybody, impressing ourselves. It's mm. totally different. Yes, we have all of the qualities that are impressive to ourselves and other people when we manifest the real self. And we can do the maximum amount of good here, the maximum amount of service and, and impact comes. And we get tastes of that along the way. So that's the encouragement. But there is this sense of I am not creative because I see what I'm up against and I see how I want to control all the time. I'm not yet free. So I put myself in the controlling category, especially because sometimes it leaks out and sometimes I can't help myself. And I'm in that place where I need help. Once again, I need help. <laughs> There's also a spectrum within each level of consciousness. You have the upper controlling, very different from the lower controlling, which is getting close to the border of destructive right? Same thing goes for each of them. At the highest levels of the destructive consciousness, there is more hope to come mm -hmm. out into the controlling. At the lowest levels of destructive consciousness, it's so dark that it usually ends in violence. And the same is true, of course, then for the creative consciousness, where we're getting so close to liberation that we can practically taste it. Um, and at the same time, that our, our yearning for it is more intense than ever before. And our feeling of struggle sometimes is more intense. Although other times we also experience ourselves to be carried um, by grace and by um, the, the good qualities that we've been given and that have been cultivated through our self-work. Whereas at the lower creative consciousness, I, I'm not quite as aware. And I am falling prey more easily to my controlling tendencies. I like this expression around being carried by grace or, and our good qualities. So do we think, do you think, not we, do you think that we can, so with, with the best will in the world and effort, completely control our ascension up the levels or do you think there has to be some grace or some other force coming in there so our effort is a very big part of the process mm. uh, there are two parts to the effort one part of the effort is the demonstration of our sincerity to break free of the ego the other part of the effort is <laughs> to generate the humility that our efforts alone <laughs> will not take us to that place. And so if we are not putting the effort, um, neither one <laughs> will happen, <laughs> right? The demonstration of our sincerity uh, to break free will not happen, and neither will we actually generate the humility of recognizing that our efforts alone uh, will not help us break free of the ego, uh, right? So the, our effort is plays a very, very big role from a point of view of our responsibility towards our spiritual life. But our efforts are not the direct cause of the outcome 
And the outcome of being free from the ego, as we understand it, is, is coming from grace. We can never really free ourselves from the ego when we are in it. <laughs> it's paradoxical. It, you can, it's like when you're tied, when your hands are tied at the back, it's impossible for us to free ourselves. We need, we need somebody else to, who is not tied, who's free, who's outside of our system to actually help free us. That's exactly what I was going to say. And, and Soren Kierkegaard paints that picture. That's what really struck me in 2006 when I first encountered his work that, oh, wow, I do need help. This is not all up to me. Mm-hmm. And, and so that's, that's, where the, uh, that's where grace uh, really plays uh, everything. It's everything in terms of uh, becoming free from the egos. When we come to that place, and that's why our efforts are so critical, because when we do come up to the creative levels of consciousness and go more closer to liberation, the one thing that we recognize very clearly is that the prison, the prison that I'm in, and I don't have the keys to open the door. And a lot of uh, spiritual traditions will talk about this. There is this falling on our knees experience, that I experience the helplessness of my own effort. And uh, there is the surrender mm-hmm. that happens spontaneously that I can't do this, I need help. And that surrender, that experience, that corridor, when we walk through that corridor, that is the point where the ego completely relinquishes itself. That's the point where the ego actually dies. Uh, and without that experience, the ego still <laughs> keeps its hold. It still has the it still has the illusion that through my own efforts, I will go closer to liberation. <laughs> and uh, that transformation, Uh, where there is complete dependence on grace. And at the same time, um, I continue doing what I need to do on a day-to-day basis. I show up for the battle. It's such an experience where you have to show up and you won't get the desired outcome from your effort. (laughs) And yet, you show up every day because there is hope in grace. And Mm -hmm. if I show up, someday, I will be let free. And that is that is surrender. That is the experience of surrender. Um, and that is also the experience of complete humility with no sense of entitlement. And when we come to that place, that's when the ego just falls by the way. Mm-hmm. My guru is from Germany, and he would share this expression in German, Kanalein, Kanalein. It means, I can do it on my own. I can do it on my own. <laughs> And he, he said that um, all his life, that was his motto. And that's what he would tell <laughs> you know, his parents, his grandfather, can I line, can I line? I can do it on my own. Um, and he said he realized that that's what needs to fall away. The 12-step programs have had remarkable success, really like mystifying success by employing that principle of let go and let God. There's another a very inspiring teacher in the bhakti yoga tradition named bhakti tirta swami who um, we've been speaking a lot about in our upbuild programs and uh, i'll also be writing about he was an advisor to nelson mandela and muhammad ali an extraordinary self-realized soul and um, he would say that the most tragic thing is seeing people turn away when the going got too tough 
turn away from the spiritual path, from this path of self-work to arrive at the real self. And um, because you just don't know when that test that is so difficult will be the last one. And he says, I've seen, I've seen that people have turned away right at that precipice. They didn't realize that was it. That was the last one. They would have, they would have made it. That is sad. So we need that determination. We yeah. have, that's where our effort comes in to keep going. Can we expand on this concept that you brought brought in several times around responsibility? Because this is also a key aspect of your of your teaching and um, what that means. Can we flesh that out a bit? Thank you for asking that question. Um, responsibility uh, lies on multiple levels. Um, one level of responsibility. Uh, lies in wanting to become more aware <laughs> of uh, the stuff that I'm carrying that I'm not aware of. Um, and that is that is a, a big responsibility, uh, dare I say, relentless responsibility to digging deeper and really finding out what am I not seeing about myself that is still playing out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the second part of that responsibility is then what do we what do we do with what we see, mm-hmm. right? And uh, how do we um, how do we take steps in our own life to one um, make sure that our shadows don't leak out on other people, and inevitably we'll see that it happens when we get triggered. It does leak out. How do we learn to say, genuinely say sorry and take responsibility for it? That again is relentless responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's seeing my behavior, seeing the same thing happen again and again and again, and learning to take responsibility for that again and again and again. Uh, the third layer of taking responsibility is saying, this will end with me. What I mean by that, I'm not going to make other people the objects of. Uh, fulfilling my controlling tendencies Mm. i'm going to stop and uh, that is a very strong um, sense of responsibility uh, that that we take so responsibilities exist on several levels but ultimately (laughs) i would say the real responsibility is lies in wanting so deeply wanting to be our true self because without that, none of these other responsibilities will ever manifest. <laughs> they may manifest because there is just so much suffering in my own life. And I see myself causing so much suffering to other people that I have to, I'm forced to take responsibility mm. for for at least some stuff that will help me not experience so much suffering. But uh, the challenge is that that only goes so far. Because when that suffering alleviates a little bit, I can again sink back into my regular tendencies until the suffering comes back up again. Mm-hmm. But real responsibility is saying that this will not end until I become my true self. From that place on, every other form of responsibility starts to manifest. Yeah, just to echo what Rasanath is sharing, it's so important. Um, on a simple, practical level, we like to talk about it as calling ourselves out. 
So calling ourselves out on, on our controlling tendencies for our controlling tendencies, and that is internal and where it's appropriate. It's also helpful to do that with other people that we can trust. If we do that with people that we can't trust, we'll never want to do it again. So mm-hmm. uh, choose wisely. Um, it's a very, very good practice of taming the ego, humbling it, taking responsibility as we're talking about. And um, we, we can't really do it enough. It's so critical. But the deeper level to this, the why behind that is, as Rasanath said, because we want to be who we actually are. Mm-hmm. We want to experience the self that is transcendent, that lies beyond all of this external stuff and all of these fears and desires, controlling and enjoying tendencies. And so for that, it's all about desire. It's all about eagerness. And the more we come in contact with other people who have that eagerness and we stay in contact and we really capitalize on the energy and the insights and the support of those people, the more we fuel our hunger to become who we are and we have the possibility to experience it increasingly. What do you what do you think, feel about using the Enneagram as a vertical development model in general? Um, in our exploration, uh, we haven't come across a more precise and nuanced system as the Enneagram that can very satisfactorily and effectively explain the human condition from the perspective of why there is suffering and the specific ways in which our Mm -hmm. suffering plays out. Um, And from a developmental perspective, the biggest thing about development is awareness. Once Mm -hmm. the awareness starts to generate, once we start to become aware, it's impossible not to do something about it. And from that perspective, we think that the Enneagram is an extraordinary tool of uh, one, to develop self-awareness. And number two, uh, if we know how to systematically work through some of that, uh, those behavioral uh, patterns that we encounter, uh, it's natural that we will start to grow, rise up in the levels of consciousness. And we found the Enneagram to be extremely effective there. We have also found the Enneagram to be very, very effective in our coaching work, mm-hmm. uh, be it in the context of an organization when we talk about relationships. Um, it helps to demystify <laughs> why somebody else doesn't think like me yeah. <laughs> and and how, oh, wow, actually, I never realized that what the other person experiences is very different from what I experience, but mm-hmm. in the same visceral way. Mm-hmm. Right? And it helps us generate more empathy uh, for the other person. It helps us generate more understanding of the other person. And then consequently, it brings the collective levels of consciousness up. So again, the Enneagram is extremely practical yeah. uh, when it comes to uh, team dynamics is what we have experienced. Yeah. Again, um, we want 
to really meet people where they're at. And mm. there's something for everybody who is interested to grow. If you're not interested to grow, then of course, uh, there's not much we can do. But <laughs> if you have any desire to grow, there's something here for you. Mm. And the Enneagram is right in line with that. The levels of consciousness being the most useful aspect of it, as we've been talking about. Good, what, good place for us to park the exploration, maybe. Thank you so much. I am speaking to Peter O'Hamrahan next. Hopefully, I think on the somatic Enneagram, but maybe on the Enneagram and relationships. It's going to be one of those.